Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Room Now podcast. It's September 22nd, 2023. Today, we have a special guest, good friend and world beater in RA and all things rheumatology, Dr. Michael Weinblatt from the Brigham. Hi, Mike. How are you? Good, Jack. Thanks so much. Very kind of very kind introduction. Thank you. Yo, it's it's well deserved. Michael's been very helpful in this past month um, on the website. Uh, he and Janet Pope were instrumental in planning this hard decisions in RA campaign where we try to expand our thinking and uh, our reporting on RA to get a lot of new views. Uh, that's why I've asked Mike to come on and help review the news uh, and to review this past Tuesday's uh, Tuesday Night Rheumatology, which was on methotrexate decisions. I'll start by saying, Mike, that was an incredible hit. I mean, before we woke up the next morning, that broadcast, a one-hour broadcast, had over a 1,000 views on the different channels that we put it out to. So amazing, and thank you for doing that. Well, you know, methotrexate's an old drug, but it's probably as important a drug as we have for rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah. And we're always learning about the medicine. I mean, you know, 30 some 40 years after, you know, we did our trials, we're still learning about the drug. It's pretty amazing. And it's the background therapy and, you know, the biologics have only enhanced the importance of methotrexate in the management of RA. I don't see it going away anytime soon. I liked how you began that, that uh, webinar, Tuesday Night Rheumatology, you said that, um, that when I invite you back 10 years from now, we'll still be talking uh, about methotrexate as the kingpin. Yeah, you know, other drugs, you know, the JAK inhibitors clearly beat methotrexate in the randomized trials. But even before we had oral surveillance and the change in label, I never thought that, that methotrexate would be replaced by any of our newer therapies because of the cost differential. I mean, it's really hard to spend $50,000, $60,000 on a therapy that's really good when methotrexate is really good in at least a third of patients in like a $2,000 a year cost and else, maybe even less elsewhere. So, you know, we got to learn how to use it. We got to learn how to use it better. We need to learn how to make sure we don't harm our patients. And when it's not working, we need to go to another treatment or add another treatment. So I, I wanted to end with this, but since we're on the subject in this Tuesday night rheumatology uh, webinar, the topic was um, methotrexate decisions. We, we got survey results from rheumatologists. We had a great panel which was you and Grace Wright and Richard Conway and Joel Kremer. Uh, and we discussed a lot. Um, it was just amazing at how many people showed up. So first question to you about that panel, um, which people can see on the website or on YouTube or on podcasts. Why do you think that we're still so enamored with methotrexate? Do you have a good reason for that? Uh, well, it's a complicated drug. Let's start with that. There are nuances in how to use it. I mean, it's, I, I, re like, I refer to methotrexate like prednisone and PMR. I mean, you're tweaking the molecule. And I think those, that, of, those of us that are successful with the drug have learned how to play with the molecule. It does have side effects. There are tolerability issues. And I think you just have to learn about the drug and learn how to monitor and learn how to reduce side effects. Because I must say in my practice, I don't have 50% of patients stopping the drug because of to toxicity issues. I mean, right. you got to play with it. And we're always learning about it. So, you know, I think rheumatologists appreciate how important it is for our disease, rheumatoid arthritis, and want to learn how to use it better. 
in, in that webinar, we reviewed a lot of information about folate dosing, methotrexate dosing, lung disease, monitoring, whatnot. Do, is there one big takeaway that you'd want to reinforce for the audience? Yeah, two. Number one is I was really impressed by the consistency of response between Europe and the United States on using folic acid or leucovorin, but also on the lung disease. I mean, that was reassuring. You know, Richard Conway's an expert in this area. And, you know, Grace, Joel, and I all felt, you know, we all had different views. But in the end, I think we all felt fairly comfortable in using methotrexate in the setting of not terrible underlying lung disease. And I think we all had, we were all consistent about monitoring. I mean, I think we all felt that you got to monitor these patients and getting blood work four times a year is not the end of the world. And it can really protect our patients. And that's the goal. It's a good drug and make sure that it's used safely. Yeah, the survey result that Mike's referring to is that both in the U.S. and rest of the world, 20% of rheumatologists won't use methotrexate in ILD, but 80% will, with, sometimes with a, a lung doctor or not. So, uh, yeah, I think it was uh, surprising how unified we are in our thinking there. So, All right, let's get into um, some of the reports this week. Mike, there's a conversation where I want to get your input on um, over and above my usual diatribe on these things, which I'm already on record as saying. So the first is basically a press release this week from UCB. Um, they've been doing work on a dual IL-17 inhibitor, an AF inhibitor called bimikizumab. They got good data in psoriasis, good data in psoriatic arthritis. They've slated for a, a third quarter FDA approval or denial, but a third quarter FDA approval um, that didn't happen on time. And so they put out a press release saying, that its application is BLA is still pending and the FDA review is still ongoing and there's no date for delivery. Um, you know, uh, earlier, or almost a, not quite a year ago, there was a delay um, uh, at the FDA. They re received a complete response letter, had something to do with manufacturing and whatnot. But what's your take on A, um, this um, non-decision and B, um, uh, what might be the role of a, yet another IL-17 inhibitor in this space? Well, let's do this. Let's talk about the role of another IL-17 inhibitor. I mean, it's going to be pretty hard to show that you're substantially better than the two we got. I mean, they are really good drugs uh -huh. for PSA, for the psoriasis aspect. On the joint disease, there's obviously a lot of opportunity because none of these drugs are superior in my mind on the joint aspect. But on the skin disease, boy, 17 blockade and 23 blockade are really remarkable. Right. To show you're better than the existing 17 inhibitors is going to be really, really difficult. And, you know, I don't know that you need a third anti-IL-17 inhibitor that works about the same as everything else we got, unless you're able to show some subtle improvement, particularly if it shows improvement in the joint disease. From a side effect standpoint, it's going to be impossible to show you're better because their side effect, you know, the two existing ones are really well tolerated unless you have IBD as an underlying process. So, you know, UCB's got a, this is like, this is like Simsy all over again. I mean, Sertilizumab Pegol is a really good drug, but they were like fourth to market and where do you place it? So. Oh, I, I like that you brought that up because I was thinking the exact same thing. Um, it's going to be hard for the third drug to market to show it's better because the results kind of look the same. The only way you can be better as third drug to market is be better at marketing. I mean, didn't that happen with Adalimumab or you think it's another reason why adalimumab really took off as well as it did. So yeah. Eliximab and, and Etanercept are on the market doing well. They're kingpins 
they're killing it, and a third drug comes to market and ultimately takes over. Is that because of better marketing? Well, I think with the case of adalidomab, they had a very favorable dosing regimen of every two weeks, number one. That helped. And then the, the decision they made, it's not marketing, it's more sales, to go into a rebate program. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, what drove adalidomab wasn't... It, wasn't our prescribing of the drug per se what really drove it is when they set up rebates with the pbms where the decision the ability for us to make a decision about which sub q anti tnf therapy we would use was taken out of our hands because for many years a still remained the number one for many years even after adalidomab was approved mm-hmm. and it really wasn't until they changed when they went into this rebate program with the pbms that absolutely turned things upside down right so, so yeah that's that's a that's a uh, closed door business negotiation deal so yeah um i i personally don't get too concerned about these delays and approvals because you know these are just basically more meetings that have to happen and more signatures um you know you i guess the sinister mind might think there's something going on here i i personally don't view that um, i don't know if you feel the same yeah, you know, it's really, without being down in the room, you know, it's kind of like Hamilton. If you're not in the room, you're not in the room. Um, I don't know what the FDA is thinking and why it's taking so long. I mean, maybe there's something in the package we don't know about, or maybe it's just the usual bureaucracy going through all of this. So I think yeah. until we know, we don't know. How's that? Right. Well, speaking about more of what we don't know, uh, the black box, it is a regulatory agency. Uh, the European Commission and the, the EMA approved uh, just today, yesterday, uh, its first uh, um, tocilizumab IL-6 inhibitor biosimilar. The uh, German company that makes it is Frenzius Kabi. Um, they, they, they got a name for it called Tyene. Um, uh, odd name for a drug, but that's what you get with drug names. So this is the first uh, uh, tocilizumab IL biosimilar. Um, it's I think it's due to happen also in the U.S. sometime in the near future. It's going to have the same indications, RA, uh, stills, poly-JIA, uh, GCA, and CAR T-cell um, cytokine release, and also COVID-19. Um, I, I think this is a major advance and, and is going to get us here more into, in the United States, more into biosimilar use, which I think is a good thing. Well, I'm all in favor of biosimilars if they do what they promised they would do, which was to lower the cost for the consumer. And I we certainly haven't seen that with Adalidomat so far. And it's, it took, what, three or four years to see some significant price reductions in the U.S. with Infliximat. And if they're not going to be, if there's not significant price reduction, then who cares? Because administering biosimilars, when, they really, when we see what's going to happen with seven or eight Adalidomat biosimilars, the amount of work that's going to be placed on the rheumatologist, it's not going to be insignificant. No, um, no. And unless there's a significant cost reduction for my patient, who cares? I'm delighted a biosimilar for IL-6 has been approved. It's going to help on the IV side. If you're using uh, tozolizumab IV and sub-Q, I don't know yet. I mean, we'll have to see. So I look at, I wish we were Europe in that sense where the, the prices have really dropped significantly with the biosimilars and we just not seen it so far. No, it's, it's unfortunate. And of these nine um, Adalimab biosimilars, 
I think it's six of them come in with um, a dual pricing schedule, a yeah. 5% discount and a 70% discount. But it's really the 5% discount that's in play because the 5% opens the door for more of this backroom negotiations on rebates. Um, and, and by the way, none of that benefits the patient. Right. The rebates always benefit, you know, the the manufacturer and and the pharmacy benefit managers and the insurers. And yeah, so that's number one. And number two, if Medicare really cared about our patients, they would approve coverage for sub-Q therapy, which they don't. So right. a lot of our patients end up in the donut hole at six or seven thousand, which is about what your Dallas Maverick owner is going to be selling biosimilar adalidomat for. There's so if you're buying if you're buying directly from Mark Cuban, I think he's going to charge seven thousand dollars for Humera biosimilar, but that's like the same price as the donut hole. So I want to say it was either five hundred seventy-seven or seven hundred dollars a month through the, the Mark Cuban pharmacy. But you're right, it's about seven thousand, six, seven thousand dollars a year. It's the donut hole. And right. you know, for a lot of patients, if they get coverage by their insurance company, they don't really care about it. I mean, they're still, you know, they're gonna get copay assistance from their originator, et cetera. So the biosimilar world, very disappointing the pricing, what's occurring, but we'll see. Okay. So this next report is on one of my pet topics, and that is difficult to treat RA, D2TRA. It comes from Arthritis Research and Therapy, a Korean biologics registry of 2,300 RA patients starting either a biologic or targeted synthetic. Um, and they just looked at those people and then characterized how many and what kind of patient it was that had D2TRA. It was basically 12%, which falls in line with about four other sort of population-based or cohort-based reports of 10 to 12% as the overall number of patient, patients who meet the ULAR definition of D2TRA. And they said it was associated with a lower age, longer disease duration, lower patient globals, higher DAS scores, higher rapid three scores, less rheumatoid factor positivity. And these people were less likely to receive methotrexate, sulfasalazine, and leflunamide. Again, not in itself overly interesting. I like the number and I, I bring it up, one, to get your comment, but also to let the audience know that I that next week, early next week, I'm putting out a paper about what to do in multi-drug failures, where I sent um, this request to about you know 50 of our peers. I got back a lot of responses from from some major people on their approach to multi-drug failures in RA. And I'm just going to begin with a quote from Ted Pincus, who began his by saying, "In my experience, most uh, all multi-drug failures in RA are the result of joint damage and/or patient distress." manifest as blah, 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 anxiety, fibromyalgia, whatever. So um, we're going to see more on this from a large number of people, but what's your take on this kind yeah. of data? So we've looked at our registry at the Brigham, which is 1,500 patients with RA that I started in 2003 with Nancy Shattuck. The brass so that's registry. Like, that's like 20 some years now. Um, and about 70% of our patients are on biologics and JAK inhibitors. Uh, 60% are probably still methotrexate in combination, et cetera. And it ends up that 60 to 70% of our patients are in low disease activity or remission, which is great. Those patients are doing great. We are not cycling, you know, they're staying on their initial anti-TNF therapy generally, 
They're with methotrexate, which I think is important. We got about 20 to 25% that are in moderate disease. And we got 10% that have gotten every drug imaginable and still have high disease activity. And if I have to look at it globally, I would agree with Ted. Boy, a lot of these patients have had decades of rheumatoid arthritis. I mean, you know, they, they had their disease for 20 years before we used methotrexate, for instance, or 10 mm -hmm. years. And a lot of them are structural damage and they have pain. Um, and I don't, you know, to me, this is the great, one of the great challenges. It's the patients with the high moderate RA, because I think if you're, or, you know, if you're in the moderate class, if you're closer to low disease, you're probably like them. But if you're closer to the moderate high, like on a CDI, you're more like the high disease activity. And I don't think we have drugs that necessarily target what the issue is. I think I'm, I think the work that's come out of the UK, looking at synovial biopsies, highlighting the importance of the fibroblast in long-standing disease is really critical. And we need therapies directed against the fibroblast, and particularly in these patients with high disease and moderate disease activity. Maybe we're using the wrong drugs, but a lot of them have such structural damage, I'm not sure it's gonna make any difference. It's hard to convince pharma that we don't need another Humira. Right. What we need are drugs for that moderate to high disease patients that are that have already experienced an anti-TNF. So, so um, Michael, referring to the RAR four study, uh, tocilizumab versus um, rituximab, great yep. work there. On your recommendation, uh, and I've told the our audience this in the past. Look at Room Now Live 2023 in a great lecture by one of your colleagues, Mike Brenner. Oh my God, what an eye-opening lecture, especially about fibroblasts and what we're not doing and what we need to target. So you you're falling in line with a lot of the thinking um, that really we need to dominate if we're to really do better with RA. So Yeah, and you know, a fibroblast inhibitor, there are theoretical concerns about wound healing, et cetera. But, you know, I think that's a cell line that we, for years, decades, forgot. And we need to, you know, companies, people are starting again now to talk about. Mike Mike had developed this anti-cadherin 11 which we thought would target the fibroblast. It wasn't terribly effective. And Roche did one of the really novel trials where they combined it with anti-TNF therapy. It unfortunately didn't work, but the concept of combining it with other treatments makes a lot of sense. Certainly. I have to go back to something you said a few minutes ago, and that was in the brass registry, you're getting like, you know, high-end responses out of 60 per plus percent of your patients. I gotta. I love it when I find out how wrong I am because I surveyed rheumatologists about maybe ten years ago and asked asked them how often do you achieve uh, either remission or low disease activity state in your RA patients. The numbers I got back I thought were laughable. Eighty percent, uh, the low disease activity state. They, Eighty percent said they get a low disease activity state, and sixty percent of their patients get remission. And I said. You know, based on the published data and whatnot, that's impossible. But your numbers are actually kind of close to that. Um, why are we doing better now in real practice compared to what some of the data that's in, in the trials? Number one, we're starting people on treatment as soon as they walk in the door. And I think we're seeing people, my own bias is, we're seeing people with earlier disease. And we have like hundreds of patients right now on a waiting list to come in to see us. And this is not unique for the Brigham, it's everywhere. We've got this log jam of patients trying to get in to see the rheumatologist. I mean, Jack, we need to figure out better ways to get these people serviced. 
Um, and, you know, rheumatologists don't have time. I mean, we're booked up. And so earlier intervention, we're going right to methotrexate. We're not wasting time, a lot of other drugs. And then I think many of us are going rapidly to another drug. I mean, Ed Keystone reported this a decade ago, looking at some of the Humira data sets that if you waited more than six months to add another to add anti-TNF, for instance, to methotrexate over the course of 10 years, you never caught up radiographically and functionally either. So, I mean, you can't wait a year to start another drug. I mean, so starting a drug on top of methotrexate ought to be an earlier rather than a later decision. And ultimately, I talked about this on Tuesday night or in my podcast, in my whatever it was, podcast or something, Zoom call. Uh, <laughs> I talked about the importance of keeping people if they can tolerate on methotrexate if they're on a biologic. Because if you're stopping their methotrexate because you don't want to be on methotrexate and they're on adalidomide, a significant percentage of those patients over time are going to get blocking antibodies and lose efficacy with the drug. So, so in getting better at RA, you know, um, earlier, more aggressive, maybe smarter. Um, use of drugs. A Nature Scientific Report study um, this past week um, came out about from Japan, 106 RA patients starting first-line biologics, either abatacept, tocilizumab, or a TNF inhibitor. Of the 106, about a third of the patients started ABBA. And they did HLA typing, class 2 HLA typing on all the patients, and they showed for only abatacept that if you had this uh, related haplotype, related to RA, 0405, um, you had a much higher high-end response, SDI 50 of 71% if you were 0405 positive, but if you were DR beta 1, 0405 negative, or had 0101, 0401, that you didn't achieve those 71% responses, it was more like 30%. So I like this data because I'm always trying to figure out how can I do better than flipping a coin on my next, especially second line choice, do you think we'll ever get around to using this kind of data in treating patients? Well, I hope so. Uh, BMS is doing a study now looking at patients with the shared epitope that are CCP antibody positive to see if you have both, whether you have a better response with ABBA versus an anti-TNF treatment. I mean, that's kind of, you know, I don't want to say precision medicine, but it's about as good as we're going to, you know, for right now. Right. You know, you may remember this, that like 30 years ago, Gabriel Panay, when we actually used gold salt therapy, you know, Gabe was first reported out in HLA association with gold-induced nephrotic syndrome. And we did a subsequent study at the Brigham as one of my first research work with David Glass and, and John Koblen. We reported out an association of gold-induced thrombocytopenia with DR3 and we reported that patients, I think that were DR2 positive or some, actually had the best response on gold. And, and that kind of like died after a while because we went to other drugs. But I do think there's going to be genetic reasons why people have a better response on drug therapy. You know, I, I have to tell an anecdote that I think is incredibly funny. And I'm probably going to get in trouble for this, but I don't, it's my podcast, what I care. So again, 25 years ago, ACR meeting, plenary session. Uh, one of the plenary session talks was an HLA DQ association with breast implant associated arthritis. And, you know, great presentation, number of people run to the microphone, 
Bevra Han gets up and asks the question, great presentation. Thank you for that. How do we know HLA-DQ6 isn't associated um, with, with women who have small breasts? You know, and of course the crowd went crazy and whatnot. So some of the fault in limited studies and, and trying to make these associations, but um, I think that the, the trial you talked about is a follow-up to the ample trial, adalimumab versus abatacid, but now trying to go after this typing, probably going to be powered to, for a, a good message. We'll wait and see what that study may show. Um, I, this next report is our last one I wanted to cover, and this is the ability of machine learning to help diagnose arthritis earlier. This comes from the journal We Don't Read, Journal of Translational Autoimmunity. I didn't know it existed, but somehow I found the, the, the report. It's an interesting report. And it basically um, uses a, a tool, a machine learning tool, that looks at three years of EMR data to find the clues to better diagnose, earlier diagnose psoriatic arthritis. So over a 12-year period, they looked at two populations, a general practice population and a psoriasis population. These were kind of large, thousands of patients. And they ultimately showed that using this tool, they were able to diagnose psoriatic arthritis one uh, to four months earlier, with a specificity of over 91%. And at one month before the diagnosis, their sensitivity was around 50%. And at four months before, the sensitivity was, I think, 30, 30% or so. But the point is that, you know, we do have a significant problem of A, referral, and B, earlier identification, you know, and getting these people in on the right therapy. Do you think this could be an advance that might end up in your hospital system or mine? Well... I don't know, but talk about psoriasis. And I don't mean to uh, besmirch my dermatology colleagues, but I'm not sure many of them are, are experts in doing, in figuring out whether someone's got active arthritis or not. Right, right. So anything we can do to get patients with psoriasis to the rheumatologist for early psoriatic arthritis is only going to be an advance for patients. I mean, one of the things, and maybe this already happened because you could ask Artie or your, some of your other colleagues, is are we seeing lower rates of development of psoriatic arthritis in patients that start effective therapy for psoriasis very early? In other words, if you get on a, an anti-TNF that's at the bottom of the line, an IL-17 inhibitor or 23 inhibitor and have no skin disease now, are you going to get psoriatic arthritis? I, mean, I don't know the answer to that. There's a number of reports that support that contention, but uh, the experts in the field, Alexis Ogdi and Chris Richler and others say there's a lot of um, bias in that, channeling bias and confounding. So it's hard to know that that treating preclinical psoriatic arthritis, AKA psoriasis with biologics prevents that. It's it's an interesting concept, but um, I, think you're, I think you're right that dermatology is, I think dermatology is gonna love this tool because it relieves them of a lot of responsibility and they're struggling, you know, to, you know, what can we use to better identify people and refer them to rheumatologists? So I think that they would take this uh, uh, gladly into their, into their. Yeah, I think, I think it'd be very helpful for patients. How's that? Yeah. And that's our goal is to get yeah. patients seen earlier and get them treated sooner. The last thing I wanted to throw at you was something we came up with when we were doing our planning for this month. We said, you know, you said we really need to get some commentary on the steroid issue the ULAR has got a view, the ACR has got a view, you know, they're really quite different. So we got great people to contribute a three-part video, 14 minutes long. It's under a therapeutic update on the website. It's called Steroids in RA. 
It's a perspective piece with uh, Robert Landaway uh, explaining the ULAR position on why they are uh, much more permissive about starting steroids and acknowledging the merits of uh, short-term low-dose steroids, acknowledging that most of you are going to stop it at some point anyway, which is in contrast to the ACR view, which is presented by Brian England, who does a fabulous job basically saying, who are we kidding? There's side effects here. There's issues here. And we're not that good at getting people off the steroids. And the benefits we're all talking about are kind of soft. They get better faster. They feel better sooner. You know, uh, but the, the toxicities are real, albeit small, they're real. And then we have the deciding vote being cast by um, Down Under from Peter Nash, who gives a totally different view, but he kind of sides with that you should use them, but that basically he's saying, I guess, that that the, the, the ULR people are, are right, but I'm, I have a, an American um, or ACR worry. So uh, you were, were you not on the... Uh, yeah, I was on the committee. Yeah. So I agree with Brian, actually, even though, look, there's not anyone who practices rheumatology that would say they don't use steroids. So I'll be very candid. I do use steroids in someone who's functionally impaired when they walk in the office that I don't have the ability to start them on a really rapid onset drug. I mean, methotrexate works quick, but it ain't that quick. Right. And we're not going to use a jack inhibitor because of the label and we can't get to a biologic until you get a trial with methotrexate. So, and someone who can't, who I can't, for eight, six to eight weeks, they, they're not gonna be able to function. We would use a little bit of prednisone. But ultimately, I just don't think every patient with RA should get exposed to steroids because a lot of these people, I think, never get off their steroids. And any dose of prednisone is toxic. And if you can't admit that, then you're not following these patients. It's not just, you know, metabolic syndrome. What I what we see are patients who have skin fragility issues, that can't wear a short sleeve shirt, that bruising everywhere, the hyperpigmented, the patients that are getting cataracts and osteoporosis, increased risk of cardiovascular disease. And Dan Solomon has shown now in a number of studies that essentially any dose of prednisone is associated with a higher risk of infection. So that's the reason. If I knew that 100% of the people that we started on prednisone, we get off steroids in a couple months, I wouldn't have this problem. But I don't see that in my practice. I mean, some of these people are still on prednisone, maybe because our other drugs drugs aren't that great. But, uh, you know, I just, I'd rather not use steroids if I could avoid it. And I personally, I think if we give the statement out, you can use steroids, then a lot of people are going to go on steroids that probably don't need them. Yeah. And low dose is better. I mean, so I, I'm right with you in my practice and also my worries. I, I tell everybody steroids are acutely wonderful, chronically dangerous, and that they must be written with an unnegotiable expiration date, meaning I'm only giving you, you know, 56 days of prednisone. There will yeah. be no more after that, something like along those lines. So that decision making is is already established. But I'm, I'm sure, Jack, you have patients who you say that to, that you look three years out, they're on three or four milligrams of prednisone because you can't get them off the steroids. And I and I tell them, you're making me look bad. You're making yeah. me look really bad. But uh, yeah, that's the struggle. And um, and the problem is patients believe that the drug that makes me feel great is got to be the best drug for me. When in fact, they don't listen to you when you say it's it's actually not 
no longer the best drug for you. So, yeah, so. Uh, Michael, this was absolutely wonderful and enlightening. Thank you so much for all your hard work Thank this you, month Jack. and being on this podcast. I want to remind the audience um, next week on Tuesday Night Rheumatology, we've got a great panel discussion on DMAR choices and changes. Uh, it's me, Artie Cavanaugh, Alan Matsumoto, and Madeline Feldman. It's going to be fun. Be there. Mike, thanks again. Thank you. Bye, Jack.